I'm Adam Seafew. And I'm Scott Stern. And we're here with another episode of S2D, the Symptom to Diagnosis podcast. This podcast teaches evidence-based strategies for diagnosing common medical symptoms. We begin each episode with a case, unknown to one of us. We then discuss five high-yield features that help to accurately diagnose the cause of the symptom at hand. We then return to our case before finishing up with a discussion of fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge pertaining to the weak symptoms. The cases that we discuss are drawn from our clinical experiences, but because protecting patient privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients, and most cases are composites. What are we talking about today, Scott? Today is dysuria, which is absolutely means we'll talk a little bit about STDs, not to be confused with S2D. I just thought I'd point that out. Interesting. That we call them STIs now, correct? Oh, sorry. STIs. Thank God. Anyway, dysuria sounds sounds like an uncomfortable topic. It is. <laughs> okay. Do you have a case to present to me? I do, as a matter of fact. Are you ready? I am. Okay. 67-year-old man comes in with the chief complaint of some dysuria over the last four to five days. He notes uh, even more dysuria. Uh, he's more than the dysuria is that he's voiding more often. And he doesn't know if he's had a fever, but he's felt warm the last couple of nights. Um, it didn't take his temperature. His past medical history is pretty unremarkable. He's got hypo, hypertension, sorry. And uh, his social uh, history is that he's married and his only uh, sexual contacts are with his wife. Um, his medications include amlodipine. Okay. So what would you like to know? Um, so I think you're trying to say no to all these things, but um, it sounds like no nausea, vomiting. Correct. No back pain that he's complaining no about. No back pain. And he's pretty much you know, normal with it when you're seeing him, doesn't look terribly sick. Right. Yeah. Totally. Okay. And um, going back in time at 67, BPH symptoms, you know, does he have problems with nocturia, hesitancy? Yeah, he gets up like maybe once or twice a night for the last several years, more in the last four to five days, but that's kind of standard. Okay. Okay. Urine stream, not like what it was when he was 18? No, definitely not (laughs) like what he was when he was 18. (laughs) Okay. Okay. you know, I think what we're going to have to work on in this podcast is to make dysuria seem interesting and not as straightforward as it often is. Certainly, you know, older man presenting with some dysuria and maybe worsening LUTs, lower urinary tract symptoms, top of my differential would be cystitis, shockingly. And, you know, young men, very unusual for them to get UTIs, urinary tract infections. Certainly, as we get older and we don't do as good of a job emptying our bladder, that gets to be more common. And, you know, at some point you stop even working up. Why did you get it? Because you just assume it's BPH. Um, The four to five days and the fever or whatever, febrileness, um, feverishness, um, make me maybe a little more concerned that it's something more than just a UTI. And the next thing that would come to my mind would be prostatitis, which is, I'm not sure it's a must-not misdiagnosis, but it's kind of a must-not misdiagnosis, right? You don't want to leave that um, untreated. You don't want to leave any of this really untreated. Um, But so I'd certainly be thinking about that. And my evaluation of this guy would include a a prostate exam. Um, It really does not sound like he's got pyelonephritis, but I'd make sure that when I was examining him, I'd I'd whack on his costovitibral angles to make sure he's not real tender. Um, Boy, you know, I guess I'd 
maybe ask more of a sexual history to make sure that this wasn't um, an STI, right? People can get STIs at any age, um, but it sounds like that's probably unlikely. So it's not terribly broad differential, but that's, I think, how I'd be starting it. Yeah, it sounds pretty good. I did have an 80-year-old patient once who came in with a clap, much to my surprise. They can barely walk, but apparently sex was still on the game. All right, so you want to hear about his physical exam? I do. All right. So his temperature was 38. His blood pressure was 135 over 87. His pulse is 86. His respiratory rate was 16. You know, not shockingly, his cardiac and respiratory exams were unremarkable. Um, His belly was soft. He did not have costovertebral angle tenderness. Um, And on prostate exam, he was exquisitely tender. Yeah, there you go. So I think at this point, you know, I would send him for a UA. Um, I would actually do a urine culture because I think I'm going to be treating him for prostatitis, which is going to be a long course of antibiotics, um, you know, probably a month's worth. And I'd want to make sure that I was treating him for the right thing while I'm treating him. Um, And I guess, I think... These days, we still start with fluoroquinolones for prostatitis, though we've sort of given those up because of, I think mostly because of adverse effects for just plain old urinary tract infections. But I think they're still first line for prostatitis. Um, And then I kind of follow him closely, make sure he's getting better and follow up on that culture to make sure I'm treating him with the right thing. Good. All right. So we'll come back to him at the end then. What do you say? So let's move on to the uh, five key points. Um, and I'd like to hear about five key points for diagnosing the cause of dysuria. <laughs> well, it was a little bit of a stretch to find five key points, but I think I've done it. Good. Um, the first is fairly obvious and that dysuria, unlike so many of the other symptoms we've talked about, is almost always infectious. And it's usually one of several categories. It's either cystitis, pyelonephritis, prostatitis, an SCD of some sort, or vaginitis. I got nothing to say about that. I think it's true. I mean, when I think about other causes of dysuria, often the cause is clear. You know, it's someone who's got a history of, say, urethral stenosis or just had cystoscopy or is passing a stone and, you know, it's in their urethra or it's just come out of their urethra. Yeah, for the most part, things that have irritated the urinary tract distally are infectious. Right. I mean, it's funny. It's one of the few things that's relatively straightforward from that point. Okay. So the point two is actually, this is might be the only time in the podcast where we're going to say we can make diagnoses often without any testing. And that is that cystitis by far and away is the most common diagnosis. And it's often made just clinically. A woman comes in, a young woman who's sexually active comes in with classic urinary symptoms of frequency and burning when she urinates. And often we'll make that diagnosis clinically and even on the phone. And the reason we do that is one, it turns out that um, those patients, those women, if they don't have vaginitis, if they don't have vaginal discharge, 90% of the time, it's actually cystitis. And the UA is shockingly enough, not sensitive enough to rule it out. Probably that's in part because women have learned to drink a lot of water when they have cystitis. So you dilute out all the white cells in the bacteria that you're dipping for when you dip it. And actually, the negative likelihood ratio of a negative leukocyte esterase and negative nitrate is only 0.3. So with that high of a pretest probability, it kind of leaves you to say, okay, you've got classic symptoms. I'm going to go ahead and treat you. So are you ultra-conservative, ultra-risk-averse Dr. Stern saying that we can do fewer tests? In this one case, (laughs) I'm going to go with that. But you may find another trouble finding that in another podcast. (laughs) 
I did a little math here uh, just to sort of highlight what you just said, and it's really striking. Um, I love sort of fiddling with test characteristics, um, you know, pretests and process probabilities on occasion to kind of demonstrate the reality of what you just said. And so if you have that woman, okay, who's got, as you say, dysuria, urinary frequency, but without vaginal discharge, so someone you'd say, I think this person has a UTI. You said they have a likelihood of 90%, okay, which is what I found too, as far as kind of pretest probability, prevalence, whatever. And so if you do a UA on that person, which has negative LUCs and negative nitrites with that negative likelihood ratio of 0.3, that means your post-test probability after that is 73%. So still basically three out of four, that person has a UTI despite that negative dip. So really the answer is don't even do the test. Just treat them. Just treat them. Having said that, though, <laughs> point three is you need to know when to take pause. And so one of the things you always have to think about, is there any chance that this is pyelonephritis? Because pyelonephritis requires different treatment, often intravenous, often for a longer course. So when should you think about that? Well, you should think about that, of course, if they have CVA tenderness, if they have rigors, if they have fever. It turns out that 93% of people with pyelonephritis have fever, and fever is very uncommon with cystitis. So if you see fever, you need to step back and say, boy, I'm going to treat and evaluate this as though um, they have pyelonephritis. But be careful. You know, the converse is not true. And what I mean by that is most people with pyelonephritis also have low and lower urinary tract symptoms because the pathophysiology of pyelonephritis is usually an ascending infection. That is, it started in the bladder and then moved up the ureters and then went into the kidney. So often these patients have had multiple days of lower urinary tract symptoms, then got febrile, then had back pain. So if you have any of those things, fever, back pain, et cetera, boy, you should move on and think about pylo. I think those are great points. You know, on the one hand, it's not hard, especially on the phone, to ask those extra questions, you know, do you have fever? Do you have back pain? I've actually had people, you know, actually do their own CVA tenderness, you know, which is kind of <laughs> easy. And if, if I hear them jump or go, whoop, when they do it, you know, I, I know I should assess them more. And then... It is true. I, I actually, I have to say, I didn't really know or haven't really thought about the fact that most people with pilo have urinary tract symptoms. Um, but it is true that, you know, there's some minority, I guess, who don't. Um, and so I think we get in the habit of sometimes thinking, of, maybe it sounds like it's my mistake, of thinking about pilo not having urinary tract symptoms. But of course they do, right? Um, and so you just shouldn't be, you shouldn't be confused by that. Right, totally. Okay. Number four. Well, this is really one of the few pivotal points in dysuria, which is really you have to separate out women that have a vaginal discharge and some form of, you know, uh, vaginitis from women that have cystitis. And it turns out if women have uh, vaginal discharge, the likelihood ratio for cystitis drops to 0.2. So now the differential is really completely different. And it includes uh, STDs, including chlamydia, GC, trichomoniasis, it includes bacterial vaginosis. Um, candidiasis and atrovic vaginitis. So the workup's totally different. Right. Um, and typically the workup includes a pelvic exam and a wet prep of the vaginal discharge. And uh, there's a variety of things you can look for. I'll just list them quickly because they're so exciting. Um, you can do a positive whiff test for bacterial vaginosis, which uh, smells like fish. Um, a curd-like discharge uh, really suggests candida vaginitis. You can do a wet prep looking for clue cells, which are lots of bacteria around the white cells, which can be seen in bacterial vaginitis, or uh, modal uh, trichom trichomonads and trichomoniasis. 
Um, a KOH prep can help show budding yeast or uh, mycelia. You can also do a nucleic acid amplification test for trichomoniasis. Um, and for finally, for GC and chlamydia, um, of course, you can do a urine test. It turns out that urine tests and uh, cervical cultures have all about the same likelihood ratio. So any of those is completely fine. If you are worried about discharge, the last thing I would say is you do have to check for cervical motion tenderness because PID is in this differential. And that's a really much more serious illness that you can't overlook. That was kind of boring. Sorry. <laughs> um, well, one thing. <laughs> That wasn't very nice. I mean, what am I supposed to do? It's a list of things. It was. No, it, it got it got across the information. Um, I wasn't saying it was bad. It was just a little a little dull to listen to. Um, one thing that maybe I'll throw out here, which I think you'll be very interested in, we talked back when we did dyspnea. We talked about that Schwarzstein paper where they worked on figuring out if different types of dyspnea actually felt different. Right. Wouldn't it be interesting to do a study to see if in women, if dysuria from cystitis actually felt different from dysuria from bacterial vaginosis. I would expect it does. I think you should start that study right away. I will be happy to send all my patients with this complaint to you and you can sort it out. How's okay. that? Number five. I hope this is not This, this is much list. briefer, okay. uh, which is that in men who have a penile discharge, of course, that's also a different animal and you have to think about STDs, GC, and chlamydia in particular. Right. I should have mentioned, as you say that, when you think about the case, you know, when you're thinking about prostatitis, um, right, in older men um, who tend to be, uh, have less risky sexual behavior, let's say, um, overwhelmingly what you're going to find is, you know, gram negatives, the same things that cause um, uh, cystitis. Uh, in younger men with maybe higher risk, um, there's there's a more diverse array of, orga array of organisms that could cause their prostatitis. Right, exactly. Sure. Okay. And in the old days when we had gram stain material in the clinics before Clea weighed in and said that was a bad idea, you could actually gram stain these and see gram negative diplococci. Right. But then you'd get blue stains on your white coat. You might, but that would show you were a real doctor. <laughs> okay, let's um, finish up the case. You got anything else to tell me? Uh, yeah, so he had a urinalysis done, and that was uh, negative. And he was treated on a long course of antibiotics, and he got better. So what is your interpretation of all that? I think he had prostatitis, and I think he got him better. Um, did you check a PSA on that visit just for kicks? Now, that would have been a mistake, as you know. <laughs> so just to make that point, pro uh, prostate cancer almost never causes dysuria. And anything that inflames the prostate can raise the PSA. So if you made the mistake of getting a PSA in a patient like this, you're often going to find it's very highly, very high, very elevated. Um, it's very nonspecific. That'd be a mistake. And you should definitely repeat it in, you know, one to two months. Yeah. The converse of that is, is if you are following a PSA on, on someone and, you know, you've gotten, I don't know, in 2018, their PSA was 2.0. In 2020, it was 2.4. And in 2021, it's 97.8. Um, they probably have prostatitis rather than prostate cancer. You know, it's true. You and I have talked about that before. And when we see giant jumps in the PSA yeah. that are very quick, yeah. we often think that it's infectious. Right. Many of those people are better. You just repeat it. Right. But don't lose track of it. If you do that, you better make sure you repeat it. Right. Right. Okay. So now we're going to move on to uh, fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. Scott, why don't you start us off? 
Well, you were asking about whether or not the dysuria complaint could give you be a, you know helpful diagnostically, and I didn't find that, but what I did find is curd-like discharge on a vaginal exam has a likelihood ratio of about 130 for yeast infection. So that's if I have a woman who complains about that, fine. I'm just frankly treating her, I have to say. That's, that's a serious likelihood ratio. Uh, mine is pretty good, but not quite as high. So uh, the whiff test, which is the smelling the discharge and if it um, smells fishy or an amine scent is how it's also described, whatever the hell that means, um, has a likelihood ratio as high as 22. And I think the as high is that you need to have been taught uh, what the smell is so you can actually know it. And that's for bacterial vaginosis, if I didn't say that. Great. And the last one I have isn't really a physical finding, but it's worth pointing out that the, uh, if you did do a UA and the leukocyte esterase is positive, it has a likelihood ratio of anywhere from 12 to 48 for cystitis. Right. So Luke's negative, not terribly helpful. Luke's positive, quite helpful. But I'd be careful again, if they have vaginitis, sure. of course, it's a different animal. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Okay. Common misconceptions? Um, yeah. The urine nitrate is not as specific um, as people would think, um, likely due to secondary vaginal contamination by bacteria. And the likelihood ratios are only anywhere from three to 30. Similarly, Actually, the UAs will often report out whether or not they see bacteria, but to those of us that have actually looked at UAs in the old days, a bacteria on a non-stained specimen is a dot that's floating around. I don't believe that that has very much diagnostic value either. I'm with you. I'm with you. I think my misconception is, is the prostate massage. Um, you know, this was something that people were talking about when I was in medical school decades ago. Um, and that's something that should be a thing of the past. You know, in someone who has prostatitis, massaging their prostate is basically cruel and unusual punishment. It may also, you know, there are at least reports of that you're basically squeezing out endotoxin, you know, you might make the person worse. And you really do not need an aggressive prostate massage to get a positive UA or to get culture results. There's no evidence that that increases um, uh, the yield. And the whole idea that I'm going to do, you know, a, a UA before and after a prostate massage, I mean, that's just craziness, I think, before we had modern microbiological techniques. You know, but it's worth pointing out, just to emphasize, you did do the prosthetic exam. So right. you're distinguishing the prosthetic exam from prosthetic massage. Right. You right. need the prostate exam to make the diagnosis. Absolutely. The other trick to this trait I find on the prostate exam is obviously a lot of men are uncomfortable when you do a rectal examination. So what I, the way I do this is very specific, which is I tell the man what I'm going to do. I'm going to insert a glove finger in your rectum. You're going to feel uncomfortable. And then I'm going to wait a second. And then I want you to tell me when I actually push on the prostate, if that hurts so that I can distinguish the general discomfort from a rectal exam for whether the prostate's inflamed. Sounds good. Okay, so my last uh, common misconception is um, the UA is not as diagnostic in prostatitis as you might hope. Um, that's actually the truth is what I'm saying. The UA is not often diagnostic because, you know, the prostate isn't meant to communicate with the urethra except during ejaculation. Right. And so men can have a negative UA during prostatitis and it does not rule out the diagnosis. Right. Absolutely. Um, I have a pet peeve. Go ahead. I'll that, throw that's not surprising. Actually. Yeah. My pet peeve. 
peeve is when people sort of do everything they can to avoid doing a pelvic exam. Um, you know, a lot of the things we do um, in the office are not terribly pleasant um, for both doctor and patient. Uh, we don't do them because they're pleasant. We do them because they're useful. And so there are times that you absolutely do not need a pelvic exam. You know, we gave those ridiculous um, uh, likelihood ratios for uh, curd-like discharge for yeast infection and the WIF test for bacterial vaginosis. You know, if you get a history and the person says, I think I have um, a candidal yeast infection and tells you they have curd-like discharge, you should just treat that. But if you treat it and then they call you a week later and they say, I still have vaginal discharge, the right thing to do is to have that person come in, do the pelvic exam, actually assess them and figure out what you're treating. Because you don't want to give you know, another course of Diflucan when actually what they need is treatment for chlamydia. Absolutely. Agreed. Period. All right. Pearls. Should we go on to pearls? I'm going to start. Go. So the first pearl I think is pretty obvious, but any patient who has an STI also needs to be evaluated for syphilis and HIV. And the test of choice for syphilis um, is usually not an RPR because the RPR can be negative in both early syphilis in patients who have very high titers um, and also in latent syphilis. So typically we start with a treponemal test rather than a non-treponemal test. That's actually flipped back and forth over the course of our career. It has, but this is where it started out for me and this is where we are today again. <laughs> Aren't you smart? I don't know if you were trained somewhere in that interim period when they didn't know how they were training physicians. Um, so, yes, if someone has an STI, you should check them for um, chlamydia, gonorrhea, HIV, RPR. You know what you should not test them for? Tell me. You, you should not test them for HSV antibodies. That drives me crazy. Right. Why do that? Why do that? You know, most human beings have you know, antibodies to HSV one or two, if they don't have symptoms, you're just creating a stressful conversation. It makes me nuts. I, I, yeah, I've never done that. I've resisted. <laughs> Good. Even I've resisted. So we should have a term for when Scott doesn't want to do a test. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. You have uh, a pearl? I have a pearl. Um, Okay, this is a shocking one. Um, just, you know, when you when you have someone with dysuria, you know, we've joked around a lot that um, dysuria is generally very simple. Um, but, you know, you should take a complete history because you can learn a lot from associated symptoms, right? Ask about vaginal symptoms, uh, discharge, dyspareunia. Ask about prostate symptoms. You know, our case today had hesitancy. Um, Perineal pain is another thing that people will tell you about. Certainly ask about systemic uh, symptoms. You know, our guy had, what, some night sweats? Some warm. Yeah, yeah. Some, some sort of febrile symptoms. Ask about those because those may really, you know, turn up something interesting that you say, wow, I really thought this is cystitis, but there may be a little bit more going on and I should look into it before I just give three days of Bactrim. Right. Right. Imagine that. You wanted to take a history. Yeah. Now you sound like the old timer. I've got history. I've got pelvic exam. I'm man, going crazy today. man, man. All right. So mine is an unusual pearl, but if you should see it, um, I want you to be aware of it, which is you have to really worry if somebody has a staph aureus UTI. Um, I did see this one time and I was caught off guard. You know, most pyelonephritis is due to an ascending infection, and those are almost always gram negatives. If you get somebody who has pyelonephritis with staph aureus, the likely cause was that it was hematogenous and went from somewhere else to the kidney, 
rather than our standard ascending infection. And then you need to find out where it came from. Did they have endocarditis and they were seeding their kidney? Did they have osteomyelitis and they were seeding their kidney? Something else is going on and it shouldn't just be said, oh, it's pyelonephritis due to staph aureus. Yeah, this is another piece of data that I, I have never been able to find. I would love to know of people with endocarditis, what percent have completely clean urinalyses? Right. Because I bet it's very low. Um, you know, there it may be from um, actual bacterial seeding of the kidneys, right? Where you're right. seeing white cells, or you're actually seeing staph in the urine, or it might be, you know, glomerulonephritis from complement deposition or whatever. You know, I, I think it's my anecdotal clinical experiences that people with at least acute bacterial endocarditis and probably subacute bacterial endocarditis as well have something active in their urinary sediment. I think that's true. Where I got burnt was a patient who came in who had back pain and fever. And the first diagnosis that came to mind was pylo. And then she grew staph aureus. And mm. we didn't initially look to see where else it was coming from. And she had a serious infection elsewhere. Interesting. So she grew staph aureus from the urine. Right. And then it was only later that Right, exactly. And so uh, that's the clue. If you see that scenario, you should really think again. That's a good one. And if you haven't done blood cultures, um, you know, you probably have started the person on antibiotics for their pilo. You might not get positive blood cultures. You might not, although you might because it's staff and you're not covering yeah, staff. Yeah, true. Um, All right, your turn. Pearl. Uh, Pearl. So elderly patients may present atypically with a UTI. I think that's not really a surprise to any of us. Um, but I've certainly, you know, it's mostly come from families who get so aware of this because um, a grandmother or an elderly spouse ends up in the hospital once um, with, you know, urosepsis and is confused or delirious. And then the person will be just a little bit off at home and they'll call you and they'll say, we're worried she has a UTI. And I'm always very impressed with the, um, with the insight into that. Um, and it's true. You may very often will not present with dysuria or frequency, but something else. I mean, elderly patients in general, they just so often present atypically, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, we've got so many pearl sites, like a strand. But anyway, my next one is, <laughs> um, we've already alluded to this, that women with a self-reported history of curd-like um, discharge should really be treated for yeast infections and reevaluated if they don't get better. Okay. Uh, pilo. Go ahead. So you already mentioned, uh, you know, treatment of pilo, treatment of pilo, longer course of antibiotics. Very often, even if you're not admitting the person, a first dose of intravenous antibiotics before oral antibiotics. If people are sick, if people are not trustworthy, those are people you're going to admit to the hospital for treatment. Um, the other uh, sort of subgroup of pyelonephritis patients, which require more than antibiotics, are people who have pyelonephritis and a stone. Um, and you might find that out because the person's presenting with more stone symptoms, but ends up being febrile with um, uh, with white cells in their urine. It might be that, that that person has pilo, but also has a lot of blood. And then you image them and you find out that they have a stone. So any person, any person, I always call it, you know, pus under pressure, right? Who has an infection that's not able to drain by itself. So that might be pyelonephritis. It might be ascending cholangitis with a gallstone. It might be just a plain old abscess somewhere. Antibiotics are not enough. You have to um, release the pressure. And so in those people, they generally need, say, stenting of the ureter, get that stone out of there, let the pus run out, 
continue the antibiotic treatment, get them better. Which actually gets to a question that's common clinically, which is how often and when do you image someone who has pyelonephritis? Yeah. And so being the nervous Nelly that I am, I tend to have a low threshold, but I think the standard recommendations are if they don't look septic is to give them 48 hours right. on uh, systemic therapy. Be, and if they're not improving to image them, what's your approach? Just that, you know, if they're getting better, you don't need to do it. I mean, I, yeah, unless there's suspicion, right? Unless there's a history that right. sounds like, that sounds like more like a stone than pylo. Um, right, because for the most part, you don't see pylo in a stone. You know, you see pylo or you see a stone. Sure, absolutely. And there's really interesting debate, which I sort of love the progression of this, about imaging for stones, because, you know, you and I grew up in a time that if someone came in with really good symptoms of a kidney stone and had blood in their urine, you were done. That's your diagnosis. And then, you know, we got crazy about CTs being so good for diagnosing stones that everybody gets CTs now, which you don't need. And there was a terrific New England Journal article a few years ago, took place in the emergency room. And instead of trying to just overcome the like people's desire to image and just say, you don't have to image, what they did is they actually randomized people to a CT or to an ultrasound, okay? Now, an ultrasound is not a great test for a stone, right? right. You may see obstruction, um, hydronephrosis, um, but it's hard to see a stone in the right, urine sure. with an ultrasound. Um, but so sort of what it was doing is saying, we're going to randomize these people to a not-so-good test that's probably not really doing anything, but at least it doesn't cost a lot, have radiation, give contrast. And then they followed those people out to just see, was there a difference in outcome? And there was no difference in outcome. Um, so you have a young person who comes in with severe flank pain, um, and if they have blood, then you're not imaging them? I'm not. I'm giving them Flomax, I'm telling them to push fluids, and I'm telling them to call me in a few days. Okay, well, huh. <laughs> That's all I have to say. I, you know me. I'm going to image them. I need to know. That's nuts. That's nuts. You know what they have, right? And they're going to pass their stone by themselves. And and the only thing that you would find which would make you act faster was if they had like a huge stone that wasn't going anywhere, but they're still not going to have that out for a few days. Okay. You, Dr. Stern, are trying to break the American healthcare system. I am. I am. Single-handedly. <laughs> I am. Uh, okay, my, my last pearl. pearl, the last pearl is, um, you know, we've been talking about UTIs like for the, the most part benign, but you have to remember that urosepsis actually accounts for 25% of all cases of sepsis. So you have to really listen to that history and you should think about urosepsis in any patient who has urinary tract symptoms with any of the following, high fevers, frankly, shaking chills. There's some data that's from old literature that suggested that a third of people who rigor, that is physically shake, have bacteremia, um, hypotension, and in the elderly, of course, obtundation or metabolic acidosis. That's a terrific point. It's one of those things that you you get very comfortable with, but you have to recognize that things can go badly. And you know, we've all seen people just do terribly and get incredibly sick, incredibly fast with urosepsis. Um, I've heard you quote that um, that rigoring data before. I, I love that, and I think it lines up nicely with clinical experience. Um, it's, I get afraid when I see somebody rigoring. Yeah. I just saw someone today who was rigoring. It scares me to death. Yeah. The only time I've ever truly had rigors since I've been like a grown up was a time I had a community acquired pneumonia. Um, and all the other times I've had fevers, whatever. I felt terrible, but you know. No. I had it with Campylobacter. Yeah. 
There you go. That's, a, that's the end of our personal medical <laughs> histories for today. <laughs> um, I'm going to throw out one more, um, just about urine cultures. Uh, you know, we've talked about young women with UTIs. Um, you never culture those people. You know, often you don't even get a UA. Um, on the other hand, if you have someone, um, a man with cystitis, a woman with complicated or recurrent infections, you should get cultures on that person because you want to know what you're treating. You want to know that you're treating it appropriately. And you kind of want the data in case that person gets another infection to say, you know, is this What's the what's the terminology? Is this recurrent or is this um, untreated? Um, Complicated. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we hope you found this episode of S2D, the Symptoms Diagnosis Podcast, useful and a bit enjoyable. As a reminder, our book, Symptom to Diagnosis, an Evidence-Based Guide, takes a much deeper dive into how to think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations. The book is available in print through all the usual places on your mobile device and also available and fully searchable via the Access Medicine website available worldwide from McGraw-Hill. The music for the S2D podcast is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez. Thank you. 